one of my undisguised purposes for asking Santa and Sheba to come while I was here in the Cape was to continue to foster a relationship between Peter and Charlotte and Santa and Sheba. Because, you see, uh, the, one of the mistakes I have seen so uh, repeatedly made in prior leaderships in, in, from other ge generations and, and decades has been when the great man, in quotes, uh, is getting ready to, to be removed from this earth, he has to scramble around to try to find a successor because he didn't raise up sons. And in fact, one of my experiences has been to observe great men from the past whose sons or whose followers, the ones close to him in their inner circles, had no relationships with each other. They all wanted a position in the circle around the great man because it served a certain ambition in them. And I remember the tragedy of hearing about this one fellow who, very well known, who, was, who knew he was dying and he was sitting in his office crying. And the fellow who told me this, and I knew both persons quite well, uh, told me that... Uh, he asked him why he, was, why he was crying, why he was sad. And he thought perhaps, you know, he might have been scared to die. And he said, no, that's not the problem at all. He said, as I review my life, I realize that all of the ones around me have a relationship with me, but none of them has a relationship with anyone else. Those things profoundly marked me as a, as a young man coming up. And I was determined to learn from the mistakes of others. So I intentionally invite and encourage and create environments in which the leadership of our house is given to each other. Because you see, there's a joining that supplies. There's no need to duplicate effort. Some are excellent in some things and deficient in other things. And by, by consequence, others are proficient in the things in which others are deficient. And they are the supply. I have this vision of our house, the, 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 the measure of rule that God has given to us, coming to such a time and place in its existence where both the present generation of elders, who are also fathers, many of whom are apostles, will continue to encourage the fellowship between the ones that they're fathering and the leaders among them to engage the others. And already I'm seeing a fruit of this. 
We have in our house certain ones who have excellence in business, in law, uh, in management, and others who are trying to get started, who need the very skills and resources that the ones who are proficient in these skills and resources have. And we're bringing them together. At this point, it happens more in an ad hoc fashion. But it's growing toward an obvious and intentional policy. Otherwise, we're obligated to start over in every generation. We aren't just talking about the culture of sons versus the culture of orphans. We are kicking out the culture of orphans by, and replacing it with the culture of sons who derive the sense of sonship from their connectedness to their fathers. You see, Cain will always kill Abel if Adam is separated from his father. Because what was lost in that exchange was his distancing from his father did not allow him to benefit from his father. And of course, his father was God. What keeps rivalry among siblings from spilling blood is that until they learn to appreciate the grace in each other as siblings, they have an ability and an opportunity to observe the way the father loves each of the sons. And they can go on the strength of the love of the father for another son when they themselves do not understand why the father loves that son who is such a thorn in their flesh. It's the father who is the restraint upon the house. Until the sons come to sufficient maturity that they can see what their father saw in the son that, they, that was problematic for them. This principle is repeated again and again and again throughout Scripture. In the story of the prodigal son, uh, there were actually two sons who were in their own ways prodigal. When the errant son returned to his father's house, he was not welcomed by the one who stayed. But the language of the father discloses the heart of the father and allows the son who had not departed to see the son who had departed and returned in the light of, of the same view as that, which, that in which the father saw him. I mean, you remember the language. The, sons, the son who had stayed home, viewing the return of his errant brother, was not inclined to be welcoming. He said, this son of yours, who has wasted his substance, and by extension your money, in riotous living, has come back. That statement reeks with suspicion. 
What's he back for? We all knew he would fail. Here he comes. I'm not about to share mine with him. He's already gotten his. He would have held him at arm's length but for his father. His father's view was, your brother. The son's view was, your son. It was the father who re-enfranchised the errant son in the mind of his brother. He was not about to do that on his own. In fact, he said, by comparison to this one that's taken all this money and blown it, I stayed home on the farm and you wouldn't even allow me to have an occasional party with my friends. You're about to kill the fatted calf for him and I never even got a, a, a young goat to party with my friends and I'm supposed to be happy he's come back. What is the mindset? The mindset is that of things being more important than his brother. He does not have the mind of the father who so loved the world that would give his only begotten son. But his father said, your brother who was lost is found. Your brother who was dead is alive. That's why we're killing the fatted calf. We're not endorsing what he did. We're endorsing the fact that he saved to us. So let there be music and dancing. That's why I gave him the best robe. In other words, this is why I'm re-enfranchising him by clothing him again in his destiny. That is why I have returned the authority to him to act on my behalf, the signet ring. And that is why we put shoes on his feet so he can walk out this destiny with which he's now reclothed. It's the father who does not lose the vision of who each son is. And while I still am here, it is my intention to bring the sons of eminence in the house together and speak to the one about the other and reveal what I see in the one to the other so that on the strength of their trust of me as the father whom they've experienced in their own lives, whose counsel, whose wisdom, whose insight they know and understand that has ennobled them, that has enriched them, that has elevated them, as Sheba so graciously mentioned tonight. That's the testimony that paves the way, that bridges the gap between sons who would, who would otherwise, not knowing, be reluctant to engage. So that, all that is in the house of the one will become available to all that is in the house of the other through the fathers. We are changing a culture. It is not enough 
Hear me. It's not enough to preach revelation. Don't misunderstand me. Revelation is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. It's the illumination of our understanding to change mindsets. But it has to be modeled by fathers. It cannot function in a vacuum. And in this portion of my life, although I continue to have revelation, because the more you are faithful with what you've been given, the more you will get from God. But it is at least as important to me, if not more so, that I demonstrate and lead the way in implementing the culture that is inherent in this revelation. So, that's not even part of my message for tonight. <laughs> so I intentionally, transparently, invited Sheba and Santosh to come down uh, from Nairobi to Cape Town to continue the relationship that was initiated uh, the last time the, all of them were here two years ago and the continuation of the relationship in Albuquerque uh, or rather in Dallas-Fort Worth when, when our uh, family gathered up there. I'm being very transparent with you. Um, in fact, there is no other way to be. It's not as though sometimes I shouldn't be transparent. If I care enough to engage you, I will tell you the truth. If I'm unable to engage you because of some forbidding uh, reason, then I won't engage. But when I engage, I'll tell you the truth about any matter. Although it's not part of the message tonight, it leads right into it. You undoubtedly recognize that I have been working uh, very deeply in the book of Ephesians. I'm actually teaching the book of Ephesians as this series. I'm laying out that which Paul has spoken in the book of Ephesians. Now, the reason for that, to me, is that it is so timely. The book of Ephesians is different from virtually any other book in the Scriptures. It is certainly different from the other book in the Scriptures that I view as being... Well, all Scripture, of course, is... is uh, of great value because it's the revealing of the mind of God. But in terms of the undertaking of the, of the books of the New Testament, of the letters of the New Testament, in terms of the subject matter that is being undertaken, uh, there is deliberate intentionality behind the writings of the book, books of Ephesians and Hebrews. The book of Hebrews presumes a virtually encyclopedic knowledge of the Pentateuch, of the Old Testament, the five books of the Old Testament, and a significant understanding of the prophets. So the book of, the book of Hebrews is essentially written to people who were quite familiar with and very literate in 
the Old Testament. And the premise of the book of, of, uh, of Hebrews is the one who was promised throughout Scripture has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. And the principle of sonship has now become incarnated in the anticipated one, in the Son of God. So the proof, the foundational proofs of the book of, Ephes of, the book of uh, Hebrews anticipates a substantial understanding of the books of Moses, the first five of the Old Testament, and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And it's an, it's an illumination of that to an audience that's called the Hebrews. The, the, and it's a reference to the Old Testament uh, designation of the Jewish people. Which is not to say it's only to them, but it is to say it is to answer every objection that they might have raised on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures to the appearing of Christ in the time of his appointment to come. The book of Ephesians is quite different. The book of Ephesians is written to the Gentiles, to people with, it does not assume a knowledge of the Old Testament, although there are references to the Old Testament in it, as one would obviously understand, that is not uh, the foundation on which this book is established. So in, 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 in many ways, it is a highly philosophical book. One might even expect that this would be what Paul would, uh, would say uh, to the audience of, of Greek philosophers on Mars Hill. It's parallel to the idea of presenting the unknown God to the Gentiles. And so the overarch of the book radically considers the original intent of God beyond written scripture. Whereas, by contrast, Hebrews anticipates the knowledge that the people would have had by virtue of their familiarity with the scriptures. Okay? I find, the, for me personally, although I love the details of the book of Hebrews, in as much as I'm familiar with the, with the writings of the, of, of the Old Testament, I love the revelation of the book of Ephesians because it answers humanity's questions from, uh, from a threshold of presumed ignorance of the sovereign God. The primary question if one is advocating for the existence of God and by that attempting to explain the, the relevance of man to God, the primary question would be, why did God create man? This is a different question from, what is man that you should love him? That presumes the existence of man, and it presumes the existence of God, 
and it's attempting to ask the question, or indeed it is asking the question, why would you prefer man to the angels? But this is not that. The premise of the book of Ephesians is more fundamental than that. It is asking the question, who is God? And given the answer to that, why would he have made man? Needless to say, it's a seminal question that everyone has. What is my relevance? Who am I and why am I here? I have found that even in, in uh, societies where the economic oppression of people is so immediate and so urgent, people are still, when you scratch below that surface of daily need or need for daily bread, beyond that, just barely below the, that surface, there is this nagging question that arises with everyone. Who am I? And why am I here? And these are the questions that are raised and answered in the book of Ephesians. Beginning with the presumption of God. Beginning with the presumption of God. So when the scriptures say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving upon the face of the waters. It begins in unpacking it to understand questions that, if not understood, and answers if, which, if not understood, would, would frustrate the effort to find answers to the questions of human relevance. One of the thoughts that I have presented already is the idea that God is too big to be visible. And I've used as an analogy fish in the ocean having no vantage point from which to observe the ocean. And yet they live in the ocean, they move in the ocean, they have all of their life cycles in it, every aspect of their lives is to be found in the ocean. But they do not get to go up. Uh, in, in Dr. Seuss, fish in a tree, how could that be? <laughs> I like to read to my grandchildren. They do not, they're not able to climb a tree. They're not able to get up above the water to observe the water and to say, ah, that's the spot where I swim around. That's where I live. In the same way, in the same way, we have no vantage point from which to stand outside of God and see God. Yet we live in Him, we move in Him, and we have our very being in Him. So then, it raises the question, who then is God if he's too big to be seen? And how might I understand this God in the way you are saying that the fish, if it could understand the ocean, might understand the ocean? So one of the first things you need to know in regards to 
God being bigger than what allows him to be visible is that everything in creation has come because God created it. Which means that while creation is observable, while creation has been in a sense presented, all of it still lies within the ambit of how we talk about and think about God. There's nothing outside of God, not even creation. Because there's no such thing as outside of God. He fills everything in every way. Now what does that tell you? That tells you nothing can happen in creation apart from God's permission. Now, one of the things that's true about that is in order to understand both what God has created and how it functions and specifically how it affects you, you have to understand it from God's viewpoint. Because if you don't understand it from God's viewpoint, then you're allowing a created thing to dictate the relevance of what has happened to you. A created thing like time. Like time. Time is not eternal. Why? It begins and it ends. Every manifestation of time begins and ends. Whether it's an epoch or a day. So, you must see things from an eternal point of view. You must see things the way God sees them. And God is not limited by time in the way he views anything, especially things that affect you. So, you might say, where was God when my young child died? Well, he was where he always was. But what you're really asking is, how could he permit this to happen? This that is so heart-rending to me. This that, that so depletes me emotionally. Now, if you're looking for an answer in a linear plane, in time, time is linear, yesterday, today, tomorrow, if you're looking for an answer, there, will, there may not be anything that satisfies you on a linear plane. But it doesn't mean there isn't an answer. It just means you need to elevate your view in order to have the appropriate contextual framework in which to understand where was God, meaning what was God allowing or what was God doing by permitting this to happen. When we reach that plane, we're asking the questions of destiny. Why are you here or why did this happen? The answer to which can only come from an eternal point of view. 
So the, the measurement of one's days is, not, is never, God is not moved by the imperative of our anticipation of having a certain allotment of days. If that were true, then Jesus should not be cut off in the middle of the week. So destiny triumphs longevity because longevity by itself is not necessarily a relevant consideration to destiny. Because simply put, all human life has some level of continuity beyond the present phase. And to understand that relevance, one has to see it from the point of view of God. God makes no apologies for disappointing our expectations. You see? Now, God, God plays with time. Time serves God. I want to show you something else. Where I want to go with tonight's message is this overarch into which I want to put all the things I've been saying. And what I'm, what I'm in a sense working with, the spot where I'm working, is to show you why God's power dominates all of creation, including your enemy. And our assumptions, you see, our assumptions that somehow uh, the way we understand things ought be the way God understands it and that God ought to be governed by the imperatives that govern us is one of the major tools of your enemy to disquiet you and to rob you of faith. I'll give you an example. The scriptures say, and I've quoted it already, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without, vo without form. Void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light that it was good and the evening and the morning were the first day. Note several things about that. He talks, and in all the references to days, he says the evening and the morning, not the morning and the evening. Scripture, you see, is known for using words as terms of art. They're not carelessly placed in sequences. Or are they carelessly chosen? And it goes on to talk about the evening and the morning are the second day, the evening and the morning are the third day. And on the fourth day, God said, let there be lights in the firmament to separate the day and night, from darkness and light. Let them be for signs, seasons, days, and years. 
And so God made a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. From our contemporary understanding, what is wrong with that narrative? You have three days already without the sun, the moon, and the stars. Because our view of time, human time, is that a day is determined by the, the cycle of revolution of the earth around the sun. You have a sun. For four days you don't have a sun. So what is meant by a day? At least prior to that. You can't make the case. You cannot make the case that God is speaking about 24-hour days. In fact, it's impossible to make the case. Why? Because the measure of time is not in existence until the fourth day. That's why, he says, and the evening and the morning are the first day. And the evening and the morning are the second day. As opposed to the morning and the evening. Because he's talking about light and darkness. There's darkness first, and then there's light. And the thing that is comes out of obscurity and is revealed. So, how long does it take for light to be? That's a ridiculous question because you're asking to apply a measure to determine the outcome that is irrelevant to the process. Because the process is taking place outside of any measurement of time. Now why can God do that? Because time is a creation of God. Time doesn't define God. Time has been created by him to serve him. And in fact, when he's done with time, he'll wrap it up again and it won't be. And we'll be off to another age. We'll be, we'll be in another age where whatever he wants to call time, however he wants to measure sequences, if there is even a relevance to the measurement of sequences, that's his business. But for now we know that there is human time. But in the beginning, when God established the foundations of creation, he was not doing so according to time. So don't ask the question, how many millions of years or how many billions? Because it doesn't matter how many, you, how many you come up with, it's still irrelevant. It's a different thing. You're mixing and matching things that do not mix and match. The thing that is a day is when what is in the mind of God to execute comes from obscurity to being revealed. And when the thing has transitioned from obscurity to being revealed, 
that's a day. When God said, let there be light. And there was light. Then, there was a separation of the obscure from the visible by God's decree. How long would that take? Again, I say it's irrelevant because it's God, the architect, who is simply taking what is already in him and putting it out on display, still in him, because he intends to use it for some purpose. And he says, when that is done, it's done in its entirety, and it does not need to be improved upon. So he's not going to come back and revisit the creation or the establishment of light in creation. When he does it, it's done completely. That's why there were not different races of humankind. When God made the seed called Adam, and and viewed the result, he concluded it was perfect according to what he understood that he wanted to do. So he doesn't he didn't need to go back and fix it and nip here and a tuck there. That's our notion of creation. I'm telling you these things so that you might understand from whom you are born and to whom you are a son. It is why he is not the father of your bodies, although he made you. He continued to make you through the process he had already established through procreation. The initial creation was as God intended. Subsequent creation is by procreation. For this human to understand his origin and more precisely his originator, his progenitor, it is imperative that he views himself not by comparison to his friends, not by the comparisons to the species, not by comparisons to history, but by, from the understanding that comes to him through the Spirit of God to elevate his understanding and bring him to the vantage point where he can see himself against the background not of time and space, but against the background of eternity. Might I say, the native habitat of the human spirit, not the human's body. That's why God took the body out of the dust of the ground. And the dust returns to the ground. And that's also why God endowed the being with the spirit out of the person of God himself. You weren't born out of heaven in that respect. And, you're, you, and that portion of you that was born out of the earth 
was designated to return to the earth. So whoever you are cannot be viewed by virtue of a reference to creation. Are you with me? This is a message of wisdom among the mature. This is not for children. This is strong meat for the mature. Not to tickle your fancy with seemingly educated discourse, but to reveal to you who you are in the Spirit. That's why there is no satisfying the human being apart from being placed and understood within the context of his maker, of his father. It's why we have to have God as our father. And it's why the knowledge of the secrets of God have been brought into creation by the one who is the, the architect of creation itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He made everything, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's why when He came, He said, You are from beneath, I am from above. That's why to all who viewed Him according to the flesh, He was an enigma. He was a mystery. He was a riddle. And it was difficult to apprehend what he was saying because their ears were tuned to the sounds of humanity and their eyes were dimmed by the slumbering that had come in when the soul dominated the spirit. But in the beginning of the creation, when man was presented in creation with the, with the duty to rule it, he was firmly connected both to his father and the divine nature of his father imparted to him. So his rule in creation was as the vassal, as the viceroy, I love the songs again tonight, as the viceroy of God. The term viceroy is the French word, a comp compound of French words, uh, uh, the French word to seek is voir, V-O-I-R, to see. And the word for king is le roi, R-O-I, L-E-R-O-I, le roi. That's where we get the word Leroy from. That would, go, that would have gone over if I had said it in the States. <laughs> it's common, a common name, the name Leroy, the king. So the Viceroy, in French it's le visoire, the, the way you see the king, the king in appearance. In fact, in Spanish, it's even, it's even clearer. They call him the virey, which is from the word to see the king. When Adam was in the position of the Son of God, whose eyes were not dimmed because they were his spiritual sight. He saw himself in creation 
as the viceroy of God, the way that God was seen in creation through the administration of Adam as the Lord over creation, set as the Lord over creation by the creator himself. Have dominion. That's the word Lord. Dominus, domini, Lord. The Latin term is tyrannus. So God actually, the first tyrannus rex in creation was Adam. Rex is the Latin word for king. Do you remember? Jesuum Nazaretum Rex Judeum. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The Latin word is rex, king. When God said to Adam, be the Lord, have dominion, he was the king who was the dominant one. Because the word for Lord is the dominant one. He was the first Tyrannus rex in creation. Ruling creation as the vassal of God. That was what was lost. That was what was lost. And it was lost to an enemy. This is the story. You know the story. I'm simply casting it in a different light so we can visit it again even as we're taking back the territory that had been conceded by our great ancestor Adam because it's the intent of God to be put on display in creation the way he is in eternity. That's why eternal life Eternal life is the facet of eternity that lives in us regularly. Obviously, when we have eternal life, we are in the one who gives us eternal life and he is in us correspondingly. That is why Jesus' prayer is, let them be one in the manner in which you and I are one. Let them be one in this way. You are in me, I am in you. Let them, who now I'm inviting to be in me, because the Corpus Christi represents the spirit of the Lordship of God, personified in the person of Jesus Christ, was sent to the earth as the entry point by which we can be received into the divine nature of God so we can function from the realm of the eternal in time. So sons of God, you know, we know the scriptures, but I'm, I'm laboring to explain the scriptures. We know the scriptures that say that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. That's what I'm trying to explain to you. That you have to be born again because we lost the mandate of being born from God through separation from God. With that, we lost access to eternal life. So we died. In Adam, we all died because there was no zoe to sustain us. It is such 
utter rubbish and foolishness for people to think that eternal life comes available to you when you die, when you go to heaven. No, it's when you gain access again into the person of the living God. He is the ever-living God. This is why the Son has life in himself to give it to whomever he wills. What is the life that is in the Son of God? Eternal life. Life that cannot die. How do we know that? He defied death himself. Right? They, they killed his body. How effective was that? God raised him up from the dead and raised you up from the dead in him. You know these things. But what we've done is we've, we've dulled our senses by virtue of seeing eternal things through carnal perspectives. When we do, our foolish hearts are darkened. We go back into darkness. Meaning, we, the things that were meant to be revealed are lost to us. And the light and the glory of that revelation does not benefit us in as much as it does not illuminate our understanding. But when we come to Christ, the light of the glory of God is revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, unless I didn't read that in Philippians. Now, why would the enemy be so interested in stealing this from us? Well, because from every indication in Scripture, he thought that he should have been the son. But God never created him to be a son. God actually created him to be a slave. When you create someone to serve as its purpose, as its designated purpose, you have created a slave. Now, God can do that if he wants to. He has no obligation, he had no obligation to make angels his sons. And he never did. All angels are ministering servants sent to serve the saints. Sent to serve the heirs of God. And God never said to an angel, you are my son. Today have I begotten you. A creation, a creature, the creator has the right to make vessels for every purpose that pleases him. If you're God, you owe no apologies to anyone. 
you can do exactly what you want to do in creation. So he made certain vessels of honor and he made certain vessels for serving. And the vessels he made for serving generally occupy the category of angels. Now when you make a servant, you never intend to commit representation of your being to that servant. Because the mandate under which a servant labors is a quid pro quo. You get this for doing that. So the existence of the angels depended upon their continued willingness to serve in the capacities for which they were created. When they broke rank and decided that the creator made a mistake in assigning them the wrong task, they questioned the integrity of creation itself. Not only that, but they questioned the, the, the integrity and the honor of the creator. It should have been enough to be accorded existence to serve the purposes of God. And one of them was a light bearer, but he was never the light. <laughs> he was the light bearer. It's as close as a servant got to participating in the estate of a son. But he chose instead to envy the son. And by that, made a certain choice regarding how he would live in creation. When he did that, he became pointless in creation. Because when you are no longer serving the purposes for which you were created, and inasmuch as you do not have an independent purpose, you're pointless. You're irrelevant. That is why there is no plan in God to redeem pointless angels. But they're bound over for destruction. And the last of that category of enemies to be destroyed is the one called death. Now, his raging war with us has called into question in creation whether or not he was treated fairly, whether or not God made a mistake. Because of his exalted position, should he have been considered to be the heir of God, for being the heir of God. In other words, he was created and served in such a lofty manner. Shouldn't he have been the heir of God? The problem with that, you see, is what is called, uh, it was void, that argument is void ab initio, which is a fancy way of saying Ab is from an initio, the beginning. Because, because, just finding himself as a, as a created being, he was bound to the mandate of his creation. If God meant to make him a son, he would have created him to function as a son, 
But when he made him as, an, as, as a servant, he limited his purpose in creation to serving. Now here's the difference. Why couldn't God just switch? Well, he'd have to unmake him and make a son, in which case he'd make man. Because, you see, a servant does not know the will of his master. Because a servant does not enjoy the same nature as, his, as, a, as a son would to a father. How did God make the angels? He said, let there be, and they were so. How did he make man? He breathed. He first he created the capacity to receive an endowment out of his being in man. And then he filled that capacity by a direct endowment of spirit out of his person into that container. And man awakened from the beginning with the consciousness of the mind of God. There is no other object or entity in creation that came into being by an endowment of that which is essentially the nature of God. Out of the existence of God, he imparted a portion of that reality into a creation that he made specifically to carry that reality. And in the end, this endowment out of God would also define the characteristics of this being that carries those, that, that, that endowment. God made it like that. When you make this creature, knowing you're going to endow him with life out of your zoe, out of your eternal existence, when you know you're going to do that, you also intend that the purpose of this being is to carry your image, to carry your likeness in the earth. That is the doctrine of representation. You don't hire a real estate agent to do anything except sell your property. You don't put them on tour to talk about you. You don't give them your signet ring and unrestricted power to sign documents for you. You can't do that because they're incapable of knowing you. Angels are incapable of knowing the mind of God. That's why they long to look into these things. And you know the difference between the angelic and humans because whatever has been created by the demonic reflects a point of view on life of works. 
anything that emphasizes value, the value of being based in works has to come out of the mind of one whose limitation in being created is he's created to do works. Doesn't mean there's no work for the sons of God to do, but we work out of rest. We work out of tatimi. We work out of positioned in God because we are able to share the mind of God. But the reason angels can't understand the mind of God is that they were not created to carry the Spirit of God, nor do they carry the Spirit of God. In fact, they're not too different from beasts of burden in the earth. They don't carry the Spirit of God either. The only exception in creation to all of the rest of creation is man. Because he was designed to put on display the invisible nature of God. You may ask the question then, why? What is man that you are mindful of? Why would that be so? I'm running out of time tonight, but I'll at least answer that question. It is so because the imperative of love requires the existence of the other. The imperative, the mandate of love. If you say you love and God is love, it is his most pervasive character. At the core of God's being is a benevolent nature. But it's benevolence unlike anything we know. It is a willingness to prefer the other over himself while the other actively hates him. So it means there's nothing in creation that motivates God to love. It is his intrinsic nature. That's why in the scriptures speak of the goodness of God. It's speaking of unforced kindness, generosity, goodness. These are the words that are commonly used to define the term love and manifested in such extraordinary behavior as being patient, being kind, keeping no record of wrongs, always seeking the good in the other, while knowing their capability for phenomenal wickedness, yet loving them. For God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning while we hated him and were the cause of his execution, he went ahead with it anyway because God is love. That's a descriptor of love. Love, you see, cannot be said to exist in a vacuum. 
Without the other, the object of our love, love is an unproven hypothesis. There are certain eternal characteristics that can only be demonstrated. Otherwise, it doesn't make any difference that they exist. If there is not the other, how would you even know that God is love? What would he love? There are three of these characteristics that are subject, absolutely subject to demonstration. They are faith, hope, and love. These three. Because they are the eternal characteristics of the nature of God that are put in time and space. Everything else will pass away because everything else is an enablement of the characteristics of those three things. Tongues, miracles, signs and wonders, they're all simply economies that enable these three things, faith, hope, and love. Those things are eternal. The others are manifestations of the economy of God revealed in time to demonstrate these, these three things. So, God had to create someone to love. Otherwise, it's irrelevant that we would say God is love because it's an unproven hypothesis. You have to have the other. Love demands it. It's the only way love can exist. There is no concept of love existing alone. That is why the quintessence of love, the final ultimate demonstration of love is oneness. But oneness without the other is singular. It's not corporate. If it was only God alone, the one spirit, then it would be impossible to express his basic nature to love. That's why in creation, you see, everything that reflects God can be understood in terms of God. The husband and wife that reflect God are destined for oneness. Not unity. Oneness. Where the two shall be as one. That's why he took the woman out of the man. To show you that two can be one. And that's why he put the woman back into the man. Through the same opening of a wounded side. To show you that in as much as you may extrude the one out of the other, you may reconcile the one to the other. And when that happens, you see God. It's the uncontrovertible demonstration of love. So the enemy 
who is condemned because the assertion that on the basis of service he was disqualified from sonship, who has brought that accusation against God, he is condemned when in those who are chosen as the sons of God, the characteristics of God are put on display far above anything that he can create. That is his judgment, that God chose rightly by creating that which would carry his presence in the earth. And in fact, the assertion of a created thing against its creator was always wrong. And therefore, by stepping out of the measure of the mandate for his creation, of that for which he was created, he lost his purpose in creation and is bound over for judgment. And the judgment will be, the judgment is entrusted into the hands of the very one he railed against as being unworthy. Because when the one he railed against, humans, as being unworthy to be known as the heirs of God, when they behave in perfect reflection of the nature of God in their circumstances, then the proof that God chose rightly is demonstrated to all creation. Now you understand why we have to be one. Beginning with the husband and wife, families, the corpus, the corpus Christi. Why there is no plan for us to be many. Why there is only one son comprised of many members. Because this is the proof to creation that the choice of God was impeccably, unmistakably right. That component, however, only has to do with the judgment of the adversary. Additionally, and more centrally, the purpose of this result is to demonstrate the nature of God, because only the nature of God is capable of producing this result. You see? I think we've teed it up perfectly for tomorrow. Because I want to talk to you about how God's intent is that now, through this that he's forming in the earth, in the person of Christ, his intent is to show to principalities and powers in the heavenly realms that which he has accomplished in Christ and to demonstrate to them the manifold wisdom of God through the chosen ones. And then we'll move into how the armor of God represents the practical ways in which you use the reality of your sonship to step on the head of the serpent. It's not about defensive warfare. It's to take back that which was lost, to bring judgment on the errant creation, and to actually bring it back into line, alignment with the original intent. Don't you know that you will judge angels? It's our destiny. It's our destiny. 
Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'm sure your heads are hurting.